John chapter 1, starting at verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Would you please bow with me as we pray? Father, you are greater than our words can express. And Lord, you deserve our praise. Lord, we recognize that we will be praising you throughout all of eternity. And even then, we will not but have scratched the surface of your majesty and how worthy you are of praise. Lord, we praise you for you have condescended to save us. You've come down in Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And you have walked this earth and died and have risen from the dead that we might be born again. Lord, direct our gaze to you this morning. By the power of your Spirit, set our minds not on the things of this world, which are temporary and fade and are but mirages. But set our minds the things of heaven, the things of eternity, where Jesus Christ, who is our life, is seated. Give us a taste of his glory today. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. And the church said, Amen. Amen. A distant relative of mine, Henry Lee Stamey, was like millions of American men, a veteran of World War II. But like so many, when he came back from the war, he was different. He was different because of what he had seen and experienced, but he was also different because in that great war, he had lost a leg. And in order to ease the pain that he felt, both physically and psychologically, Henry Lee turned to drinking and over a period of time he became the town drunk if Athens was Mayberry he became Otis and was known for his drinking that's why it amazed everybody that that night at the revival shortly after the singing had begun that Henry Lee came in and sat on the back row to this day, nobody knows who invited him. Nobody knows what made him come. But nevertheless, Henry Lee was there to hear the evangelist preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they were amazed at the fact that Henry Lee was there, they were even more amazed when he walked the aisle that night to be saved. Now in the midst of the shoutings and the hallelujahs and the glory and the thank you Jesus, there were some that were skeptical. They knew Henry Lee. And their first thought was, well, we'll see how long this will last. That's why a few of the members, as they were walking in a neighborhood in Athens one day, weren't really surprised to see Henry Lee standing outside of one of the homes of a known bootlegger. 
And they felt justified. And in a boldness that was fueled by self-righteousness, one of them went up to Henry Lee and mockingly and condescendingly said, Henry Lee, what are you doing here? And you know what I mean, Henry Lee. What are you doing here? Henry Lee said, I saw a friend of mine go in there. And I'm waiting for him to come out so I can tell him about Jesus. Henry Lee was a changed man. So changed, in fact, that after a while, he surrendered to the call to become an evangelist. And began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that had redeemed him. Henry Lee is a picture of what we want. The change that transforms us. That makes us different people. And although we can look on the outside and see the external changes that happened with Henry Lee. Where he stopped drinking and became a different man. The changes on the inside were what drove that. He was a man with new desires. He no longer desired to live for himself, living in a, a, a bottle of, 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 of beer and alcohol that helped him to escape his problems. Now his desire was to make Jesus Christ known and to live for him. Henry Lee had been born again. Now it's a word that here in the South, especially among us Baptists, that's a phrase that rolls off the tongue easily. Be born again. It's a very scriptural phrase, one that the Gospel of John comes back to time and time again. In fact, we are introduced to that idea here in the prologue of John. In these first 18 verses, as John introduces his Gospel, he introduces themes that he will come back to later on. The theme of being born again that he introduces here in verses 10 through 13, he comes back to in John chapter 3 and spells it out more. He's introduced us to the idea of light already, that Jesus is the light of the world, that the darkness could not comprehend or stop from shining. And that light has come into the world. He'll return to that theme again and again. That's why in verse 10 he picks up with the idea of light. Jesus was in the world. The light incarnate, the light in the flesh that has come into the world and the light that gives light to everyone. In other words, the light that divides darkness and light for everyone in the world was not well known. It wasn't received by all. See, we learn in verse 10 that the idea of being born again, the act of being born again, is not something that comes about except by the power of God. See, it's very interesting. He says he was in the world. The world was made through him. So the creator shows up at creation. And you would expect creation to say, Whoa, we have been waiting to meet you. But that's not what it says. Yet the world didn't know him. Now the world to the first readers of this gospel would carry... Two different meanings. To most who read it, like us, we read world and we think of the created order. He came in the created order and the created order didn't receive him. For God so loved the world, he loved fallen creation that he came to redeem it. But to the Jews who heard it, the idea of world meant all the non-Jews. You see, there were two types of people to them. The Jews and the world. 
We carry that terminology even with us today. We talk about being saved from the world. We talk about being in the world but not of it. We recognize there's the saved and the unsaved. The saved is the bride, the church of Christ, and the unsaved are the world. That was the Jewish thought here. So he's saying here that this light that came into the world, the world, the non-Jews, did not know him. They didn't recognize him. Even though he was the creator. Why is that? The scripture tells us it's because they were blind to the light. Didn't see it. Couldn't recognize it. Another reason we are told is simply that they loved the darkness more than the light. You see, it's that idea that when we hear the light or we see the light, we recognize that there must be a change. We can't keep walking in darkness so that for many, when they see the light, when they hear the message of the gospel, their response is, well, I like Jesus, but if to follow him costs everything, I'm not sure I want to pay that price. Do you mean to follow Jesus, I can't keep living how I want to live? Do you mean to follow Jesus, I have to repent and acknowledge that I'm wrong? And because the answer to those questions is yes. To follow Jesus requires repentance. People say, no. I don't want to know the light. I'd rather stay in darkness. It's like that moment maybe when you think back to when you were a teenager or teenagers, you think about it now when you're in bed and it's one of those mornings where the blankets are just a little extra specially comfortable and they're cozy and you're warm and it's nice and the pillow's at the right spot and then someone... Maybe it's your mom, more than likely your dad, who takes a special joy in coming in and shocking you, comes into the room and flips the light on. And somewhere overnight, someone had come in and they had replaced that small 75 or 100 watt bulb with a spotlight. A spotlight bright enough that it warns airplanes flying overhead, stay away, stay away. That light comes on and you know what your response is? You cover your head. You squint your eyes. No, the light hurts. The light hurts and you cover your head. Turn it off. Turn it off. That's what's played out spiritually. The truth of the light shows our spots, our blemishes, our sins, our trespasses. He says that's why the world didn't know him. Now it's easy at this point for the Jews to step back and feel a level of self-righteousness. But we can't go there because look at what else he says in verse 11 he came to his own and his own people you know who that is that's the Jews his own people did not receive him so just as the world did not know him now we read that the Jews didn't receive him now that's a very interesting change of terminology the world wouldn't have known him because they weren't looking for him Now, they were looking for salvation, maybe in their inner God or some philosophy. They weren't looking for a Messiah. But the Jews, the Jews had the Torah. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew a deliverer from David was coming that would redeem his people. They should have known. And that's why the change in terminology. They knew. They just chose not to receive him. Didn't want him. He wasn't the Messiah they expected. 
Just like today, they wanted comfort. They wanted a Messiah who met their expectations. That could be like a piece of wood they could carve into what they wanted. But Jesus comes and he says, this is who I am. You see, John is setting us up for a, a conflict that will unfold throughout the Gospels. As Jesus preaches to the Jews, they cling to who they are and think, we don't need that. They don't receive him. They do not receive him. They should have known. It's like a cab driver in Washington, D.C., Sam Storms. He's working one night, picks up someone at the airport. The guy gets in the car. Sam turns on the meter and starts driving. And as cabbies do, he starts a conversation. Starts with football. Well, you know, I know I live here in D.C., but the Redskins aren't my team. Love the Pittsburgh Steelers. But you know what? I like the Steelers, but as odd as it is, is my favorite player of all time is John Elway. I love John Elway. And he starts talking on about John Elway's accomplishments and John Elway's records and how John Elway could walk on water and all these things about John Elway. Eventually they get to the destination and as he pulls over, he hears the voice say, and you're telling me you're a big John Elway fan. At that point, Sam looks in the rearview mirror and he recognizes who he's been driving, John Elway. He was with him the whole time, and he didn't know it. That's the picture here. They know the Torah, but when the Torah comes and it's the Torah embodied incarnate, they don't receive him. And it's a warning to us that lest in our self-righteousness we forget our dependence upon God. That we think we have figured it all out and we forget that we are dependent upon Him to know the light. That we might, in all of our studies, and all of our knowledge, and all of the theology we read, that we might miss what Jesus is doing. This calls for us to have a humble spirit to say, Lord, open our eyes that we don't miss the Messiah. Have we let our preconceived ideas of who Jesus must be rob us from knowing who He is? And the fact that often things don't go according to our plan. Do we allow that to rob us of knowing what God is doing as he works out his plan? His plan is to glorify Christ. See, at this point, it seems pretty hopeless. We've covered the world and we've covered the religious establishment, the Jews. And guess what? They didn't know him or receive him. And things seem hopeless till we get to verse 12. And I love the three-letter conjunction. At the beginning of verse 12. But. I love that. Things seemed hopeless. But God. Things seemed that they were spinning out of control. But God. And just when we think, Lord, if the Greeks didn't recognize you and the Jews didn't recognize you, can anyone be saved? Do you just give up? And notice what he says. But to all who did receive him. You see. Jesus came to pursue the lost, the lost Gentiles and the lost Jews. He came preaching the gospel. He came pointing to who he is, and that is the means of salvation. And he says here, but to all who did receive him. Now that word comes up again. The word receive is a gospel word. It's a word about salvation. It's identified and used not only here, but in Colossians chapter 2 where he says, just as you have received Christ, be rooted in him and built up. To receive focuses on a gift. You receive a gift. You earn wages. But you receive something that is given to you where you recognize you had no power to make it happen. 
You see, this word receive shows us that it is the gift of God that saves us. I remember at our, my wedding day, beautiful, wonderful day, and of course seeing the royal wedding yesterday, watching bits and pieces of it, I thought, they had nothing on us. One of the things I didn't know going into the wedding ceremony is that my wife had written a song for our wedding day. And in the, cer and in the ceremony, she was going to sing it to me as a surprise. I didn't know that. So when the ceremony and the preacher was in on this too, I, we go over in front of the, the three-tiered candle opera and we light the candles and we're holding hands as the music ends. And I knew in my mind, okay, now we're supposed to go to the kneeling bench. So I start to go that way and she ain't moving. I'm thinking, I hope this isn't a sign of our marriage. She said, stay here. I come back. I've got something for you. Now, this is where my selfish mind goes. Where am I going to put it? My pockets are sewn up. Why would she give me something here? If I get it, I don't want to. And then she starts to sing this song that she had written. I knew the idea of a gift. You receive it. It's given to you. That's what he's emphasizing here. This reception is a gift of God. Now, received is filled out in what it means by two other words. Notice, who believed in his name. And we also get the word know. So we have three terms that point to what it means to be born again. You receive, you believe, you know. Now, none of those words are passive. Each one of them calls for an action in life. So it's not just head knowledge. He's not just saying, know who Jesus is. He's not just saying, no, believe these facts. He's not just saying, receive this truth. The idea of reception means you receive it and you live based upon it. To believe means I believe it and now I live based upon what I believe. And to say I know him means that there is a relational aspect that transforms the way that you live. None of these things are passive. So this idea of being born again happens as we confess and receive and believe and know the gift of God in Jesus Christ. James Polkenhorn is a, a Christian who is a mathematician. He and James Bill, I believe his name, Bill's a philosopher. They tell this little parable about what belief and faith means. Now it starts out like a bad joke. There's a philosopher and a scientist and a regular person. Like I said, it sounds like a bad joke, but bear with me. They go spelunking together. I don't know why, but they're exploring caves. And they're near a sea. And they get in this one cave, and as this philosopher and scientist and normal person are looking at the walls, the tide starts to rise. And their way out that they came in is blocked, and their only way out is through a hole at the top, but they can't reach it. They start crying for help. Somebody hears, and a rope comes down, and a voice says, Grab it and climb up! Well, the philosopher looks at it, and he says, You know, that looks like a rope. But it could just be a projection of my fantasies hoping for deliverance. I'm not sure that it's there. This could be just an existential crisis brought about by my narcissistic tendencies to view all of life through the lens of what I need. I'm not sure that it's really there. The scientist looks at it and he says, man, what a rope. That looks like a poly-weaved, tri-cord, synthetic blend, probably weighted out at about 1,400 kilograms. I bet that was produced. I bet that was made through Eastman. I want to take a look at that. The simple guy looks at them and looks at the rope and he says, I don't care if it's the tail of a snake. That's the only way I can get out of here. I'm grabbing it. 
He says, that's what belief is. You may not understand it. You may want to understand it. But at some point, you've got to say, I trust this enough that I'm going to grab it and live accordingly. In other words, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, we say, Lord, I cannot pay anything that would earn my salvation, but I will follow you. Now, it becomes a little more clear. What do they receive or what do they believe? Notice his name. What are we grabbing to? His name. Name talks about character. It represents who the person is. When we talk about the name of God, we're talking about the totality of his being, his character, his grace, his holiness, his mercy, his love, his compassion, his justice. The name encompasses all of who God is, and it communicates something about who God is. Names carry weight. I could say a name right now, and it's going to carry some weight with you. Mother Teresa. To hear that name, many of you think of compassion. You think about care for the poor. The name brings a connotation of different things. What if I said another name, Hitler? Doesn't that carry ideas of evil? A meaning of horrendous horrors? A name carries weight. So he says you believe in the name. You believe in the character of God. You're grabbing hold to God's gracious character. That's why the Psalms often say the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. That I trust God's mercy and compassion because he and he alone has offered the way that I can be saved through belief in Jesus Christ. And notice he gives the right. You believe in his name, I believe in his character, and he gives you the right, the authority to become children of God. Now we start getting that imagery of being born again. Now notice, if God gives us the right, it means that the right is not inherent with us. Our forefathers started the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They talk about the, un, in, the inalienable right. Something that's inherent within us. Listen, the right to be a child of God is not found within us. We don't have the authority to make it happen. It has to be given to us. So what do we receive from God? We receive the right, the authority to become children of God. God brings that about. This idea of children of God is one of the most beautiful images of the scripture picks up on the idea of being born again that John's going to explore in the gospel. It gives the idea of his, him being our father. That's why in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he often refers to the church as what? Little children. You're a child of God. J.I. Packer's an incredibly gifted theologian, and he made this statement, if you'll see it up on the screen. He said, if you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, in the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. How did Jesus teach us to pray? How did he say, our who art in heaven. That we are adopted into the family of God. We are born again. So he says that by faith we believe, we receive, we know, we trust him to give us the right that a change takes place. Paul says we were once by nature children of wrath. Deserving of God's judgment so that we become his children. Now notice in verse 13. Who were born. So this change comes about by 
creation becoming new. Paul uses this imagery in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. But how does this birth take place? Now, verse 13 gives us three negatives to say how this new birth does not occur. He says, first, it doesn't come about by blood. That's a reference to heritage, your lineage. Remember, some of the first hearers of this gospel and the first readers were Jews who relied upon the fact that the blood of Abraham coursed in their veins. They said, our lineage. Our lineage guarantees our salvation. That was one of the things they often said to Jesus. Matthew records a conversation they had where they are boasting on the fact they are sons of Abraham. And Jesus looks at them and he says, basically, do you think that impresses me? I can turn these stones into sons of Abraham. Your bloodline gives you no bearing with God. It was amazing yesterday watching all the festivities going on with the wedding of Prince Harry and now Princess Meghan. Amazing. A lot of pomp and circumstance and, and finery. It was of the house of Windsor there in England. <coughs> now that's impressive. It's quite a bloodline, isn't it? And it is. I don't mean to downplay it. I mean, they have a famous heritage. But you know what that bloodline means in the sight of God? Absolutely nothing. See, we can't rely on past heritage. We can't say, well, great-grandpappy, he was a believer. and I guess I am too. He says, that bears nothing. And then he moves, nor of the will of the flesh. It speaks of desire. You see, he's saying here that we're not born again just because we wanted to be. He's saying that our desires can't bring this about. And here's the reason why. Our desires are tainted at the source. What we desire is often driven by sin. This is what's referred to as the doctrine of total depravity. Now, when I say that, don't think, well, that means we're all axe murderers? No. What total depravity means is that there is not one part of our being that has not been impacted by sin. Our thinking, our actions, and even our desires. Our desires may not be what we would consider evil, but we don't desire naturally the glory of God. That's why he says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We don't naturally desire for God to be glorified. We want to live our own way. And even doing good things done for our own satisfaction, our own self-righteousness, is displeasing to God because it doesn't honor Him. So He says, your desires can't bring this about. Then He says, you're not born by the will of man. There He's saying, your plans can't make salvation happen. Your self-discipline. You can't dream up an idea and think, well, if I do A, B, C, and D, then I'll be saved. If I live a good enough life, if I give X enough money, if I'm a nice enough person, then, then I will indeed be a child of God. He says, our wills can't do that, no matter how disciplined you are. I recently finished a biography of Lawrence of Arabia, that great British figure from World War I who really changed the face of the Middle East. He was a man of incredible self-discipline. Disciplining himself to go without food, to walk in the desert barefoot, to do things that I'm looking at, I'm reading, and I'm thinking, that's incredible. 
But you know what? His discipline could not change his heart. His discipline could not bring a change of desires. Prophet Jeremiah said, can a leopard change its spots? Can we change the color of our skin? His point is this, we can't change the internal. We can't change who we basically are. We may do different things. We may put a nice coat of paint on a falling down house, but it's still falling down. And so he says, if we are not born of our bloodline, if we're not born again because of our desires, if we're not born again because we can make it happen, then we're hopeless. But the will of God brings about our salvation. That's where he comes to the conclusion in verse 13. When he says, but of God, it's the idea. Our will can't do it. Our desire can't do it. But God's will brings it about. So this is the point. The true child of God is one who is born by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And here he's saying that faith comes about by the gracious act of God. Now there's a tension there that troubles us. Because we're thinking, that means I don't have much control over it. The scripture lives with that tension. That's why it can say, you know, you receive, you believe, but it happens because of the will of God. But I'm firmly convinced of this. You ask any true believer why they were saved, why they came to faith, and any true believer will not answer, well, I was smart enough, I figured it out. No true believer will say, well, I was humble enough that I decided to ask God. Any true believer will give the same testimony that the church has given through the ages. God saved me by His grace. I don't know why, I'm not sure how, all I know is that God saved me. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul who said, I was a murderer, I was a crook, I was one who put Christians in prison, but God reached down and He saved me by His grace. That is the testimony of Augustine who lived a life of lust, living with woman after woman, doing his own thing until he encountered the God of the gospel in the book of Romans, of Romans and came to be saved. That is the testimony of John Newton who lived his life as a reprobate and a drunk who came in the bottom of a slave ship to recognize he needed the grace of God. That is the testimony of believers throughout the ages. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, who said he came into the kingdom kicking and being drugged because in his mind it didn't make sense, but in his heart he couldn't help but believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of a man by the name of John R.W. Stott. You'll read his words upon the screen. He said, my faith is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way and if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives that is the testimony of every believer if it were not for God and his grace through Jesus Christ I would be lost and split the gates of hell wide open you realize that's the fountainhead for how we live you know what drives worship it's because God and his grace has saved us that's why the idea of a passionless worship should be oxymoronic. If God has redeemed you, how can you not be passionate in giving thanks and worshiping Him? That's what drives our ethics. You know why we love one another and love our enemies? Because God loved me when I was His enemy. That's what drives our giving. If God has given so much to us, why can I not give? It is the grace of God that serves as the engine that moves us along because we recognize we are not born of the will of man or the will of the flesh or the will of some bloodline. We are born because of the will of God. And He is worthy of our praise. John's just setting the table here. 
He's telling you, you need to think about what you believed. Do you know this Jesus today? Or do you fall into that category that's relying on your own self-righteousness to be saved? See, that's why the world rejects Jesus. Because the message of the gospel is that you can't save yourself. We are not as good as we think we are. And we must repent and confess him as Lord. Have you done that?